Let us go forth into the world, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. Thanks be to God. Alleluia. Alleluia. Now, don't get ahead of yourselves. We're not done yet. Most of you surely recognize this parting charge by which the deacon, usually myself around here, sends the gathered congregation back into the world. But now I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me start at the beginning. Before we are sent out into the world, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of Christ, whatever it is for that particular day, before we're sent out, we're gathered in. We gather here on Sunday mornings as those called out from the darkness of the world and into the marvelous light of the triune God. You are here this morning, today, because God called you at some point in your life, and perhaps this morning for the first time, Jesus said to you, follow me. And however haltingly or reluctantly and inconsistently you did it, you followed him, at least to the point where you're here, now, in his presence, listening to his voice, praying to him, worshiping him, and soon to eat at his table. And so this morning, you rose from bed, perhaps early, perhaps late. You dressed, maybe you hollered at a dawdling child or spouse to get with the program, we're getting in the car, and you arrived here, here at a church, a place consecrated to the worship of God, because at some point in your life, and again this morning, God invited you into his home and made you a part of his family. And when we gather, us, in this place, we hear God's word to his people, and that word lays us bare. It lightens up the darkened corners of our hearts and reveals our sin, and then we confess that sin to Almighty God, and he does not hesitate to meet us with a word of mercy and forgiveness and acceptance and fatherly love. He doesn't stop there just forgiving the sins that he's exposing in us. He also bids us come near. He says, offer me a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving. Offer him a living sacrifice of your bodies and your minds and lives. And and he accepts that sacrifice that we offered. That we offer today on this Lord's Day in and through the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. So we get to eat at the Father's table. And the food that we eat is the very body and blood of our Lord Jesus who is present to us by the Holy Spirit. So we started this morning, you started this morning, presumably, in bed. But by the time we arrive at the Eucharist on Sunday morning, the Lord's Supper, we are in heaven. We're where the Lord is, where his Spirit is with us, and we're lifted up. We lift up our hearts to the very heavenly presence of God, and we feast But as you well know, in this world, feasts come to an end. You reach the end of the bottle of wine, you reach the end of the meat that's been prepared, and the feast ends, at least until the next feast. And until that next feast, there's work to do. And so each week after we have feasted here in the Lord's house, after God has met with us and assured us that he loves us, that we are living members of his body, heirs of his eternal kingdom, he sends us out to do the work that he's given us to do, the work of advancing God's kingdom in the world. So we go forth at the end of our liturgy because we are sent. God is at work. He's renewing and remaking this world. He's doing that 
And he's doing it through the ministry of his church. I don't know why he chose us for that work. Doesn't seem like the most efficient way of doing things. I rarely feel qualified for that work. And yet, in his matchless wisdom, that's what God has chosen. It's how God works in the world. Every week, God calls us, his people. He gathers us. He welcomes us. And then he sends us out. And he sends us in this sanctuary out through those doors. You can look at them. They're there, except for some of you who sneak out on the side, but you get the idea. Those doors, he sends us out through them into the world. And when God sends someone, he prepares them. When God sends someone, he prepares them. He always prepares the one whom he sends out for the purposes of his mission. It's what Jesus is doing in this passage in Matthew 10 and 11. See, Jesus has been pastoring and teaching and leading these 12 apostles precisely so that they can carry out his mission. They get to see firsthand what the world looks like when the kingdom of God starts breaking in in the person of Jesus. Just in the last chapter, Matthew 9, we see Jesus uh, make the paralyzed to walk, the blind see, the mute speak, the tax collector repents, the dead daughter is raised to life, and surely to be a direct witness to these things was to feel the heart surge and the mind real. There is a new world being born, and I'm here to see it. And then Jesus turns to them and says, now you do it. I'm going to send you into this world to do just what I'm doing. We read it last week. Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. He sends his apostles out to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But remember, what does God do before he sends people? He prepares them. And this portion of Matthew is about making those preparations. And so we have a kind of sermon series built in for us here, which Father David and I are going to continue for the next few weeks. Now, we don't really do fancy graphics and light up signs and social media campaigns at Christ the King. I'm sorry for that. But if you need a name for the sermon series, it's something like this. Making preparations. How Christians go forth into the world. And last week, Father David unwittingly kicked off the sermon series. He didn't know we were starting this. Um, He was talking about the nature of the church's mission. He said that we, the church, carry the fire, right? We carry the promise of forgiveness. We carry the ministry of reconciliation. We carry the good news of the gospel into the world. And this is how God accomplishes his mission. This is God's mission, to redeem the whole world, to heal every ailment, to bind up every wound, to lead every person into the death of repentance and the rebirth of grace, to, to, in a word, establish the kingdom of God. It's exciting stuff. That's the mission that is given to the apostles and is given to the church and is given today to us. Now, this week, Jesus sobers us up and prepares us for what we can expect when we go forth proclaiming the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, as you go forth out those doors on the mission I'm sending you, get ready for persecution. And the way he talks about it is really interesting to me. He starts talking about animals. So we end up with this little menagerie of persecution, a little petting zoo of pain. We've got sheep, wolves, snakes, doves, And then at the end, we get sparrows. We're about 
one-fifth of the way to a weird little version of those alphabet books for children. W is for the wolves who want to tear you limb from limb for the name of Christ. Can't wait to see what Z is. Uh, but let's look at the ones we have in order. Let's start with the sheep. Behold, Jesus says to his disciples. Behold, pay attention. I'm about to give you the word of preparation. I myself am sending you out a sheep. And let's pause there. Wait a second, we think with the apostles. You just said, Jesus, not ten seconds ago that you are sending us two sheep to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I thought we were the shepherds. And now you're telling me that we are sheep, shepherding sheep. What what do you mean by this? What does Jesus mean by this? He means that his messengers to the world are sheep first and then shepherds. And you know, sheep are pretty dependent creatures. They don't do well on their own. They're vulnerable. Wool does not really stop tooth and claw. Sheep are easily suggestible. They get lost pretty easily. They need to be directed. They need to be, in a word, shepherded. And that's why Jesus says, I myself am sending you out as sheep. He's saying, I, me, Jesus, the great shepherd, I'm the one sending you. You're vulnerable, yeah. You're suggestible, sure. You're kind of worthless on your own, all right. But I'm sending you. I'm shepherding you as the ones who go forth to shepherd the lost sheep. So when you walk out of those doors, when you go into the world Bearing the fire to the world, you're not being sent into an impossible world to just wander aimlessly about. When you, this morning, walk out those doors, you're walking into a life that you have already been shepherded into. I don't know how you feel this morning about the life that you presently have. You might love your life. You might hate it. You might be utterly overwhelmed by it. You might feel like you've aimlessly wandered into it. But I'm here to tell you that the life that you presently have, your actual life, is the life into which you've been shepherded by a loving God. And it's precisely the life that he's sending you into out of this gathering. You have the family you have, for better and for worse. You have the neighbors that you have. You have the work that you have. You have the burdens that you carry because these are the ones that God has shepherded you into. Now, I'm not saying... We need to be Buddhists and simply learn to accept our lot with passivity. And I'm not saying you can't hope for or work for a change in your life. I'm simply saying that the world that you walk into, actually, out of this place, is precisely the world that God is sending you to. It's your actual life. This week, not some imaginary life or some ideal life where you're called to be obedient. It's to your actual relations, not to some imaginary or ideal people that you're called to proclaim the rule and reign of God. He has shepherded you into this life, and he sends you into it as a sheep. And this is a bolstering word, right? Jesus says, I'm sending you not into a, a world over which I have no control, a, word, a world over which you will, into which you will wander aimlessly. I'm sending you into a world, into a life that I have shepherded you into and will continue to do so. And then he hits us with the rest of the line. I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Well, shoot. That's precisely what a sheep does not want to hear. If you were starting to entertain lovely pastoral thoughts of lush grass and rolling hills, This will sober you right up. But Jesus is not sentimental. He's not trying to bait and switch you into serving him. More than anyone, 
Jesus knows that the world into which the kingdom of God is breaking is evil. It's a world that hates God. It's a world of violence and abject selfishness and insatiable lust and gluttony and greed. Let's remember that on a literal level, what Jesus is saying here is exactly what happens to him first and then to his apostles. Jesus comes proclaiming the kingdom of God, and what does he get for it? He's doubted by his family. He's betrayed by his friends. He's hated by his people. He's flogged in the synagogues, and he's executed by the state. And so it is with his apostles, every one of whom except John suffers martyrdom. Disciples are not above their teachers. Servants are not above their masters, as Jesus said. So if Christ is called the devil, Christians who are witnessing to God should expect at least a little bit of name-calling. And it might be salutary at this point to pause for a second and ask a question. Why? Why should Christians expect persecution? Aren't we carrying the good news? Aren't we carrying the thing that everybody needs to hear and most needs in life? Why should we expect persecution? Well, for one thing, it's because when Jesus sends his people out into the world, they're expected to actually do something. Whether it's loving and serving the Lord or rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit or even just going forth in the name of Christ, God expects his sent ones, his missionaries, his people to actually be doing things for the sake of his kingdom. In the newsletter this past week, which I know you all read attentively and faithfully, Father David offered us two evaluative questions that we can ask every day, every week. If you want to keep the fire, if you want to live the faith, one way to do that is to ask yourself, what will I do today simply because Jesus told me to do it? And what will I avoid today simply because Jesus told me I should avoid it? And I'll be honest, far too often my honest answer to those questions is probably nothing. What I do with my day, how I spend my time or my money, it too often has little to no reference to the kingdom of God which I belong. And this is the reality. If you want to be sure to avoid persecution, opposition, if you want to avoid awkward conversations or discomfort in life, if you want the surest route to an easy life, simply ignore God's call and command. It's that easy. If the conversations that you have the activities that you or your children are involved in, the people that you see, if the spending habits that you've developed over time, if the podcasts or Twitter accounts or Instagram personalities who take up your mental real estate, if the entertainments with which you fill your lives, if, if these are not influenced or shaped or determined by your obedience to God, to the king who has claimed your life, then you're not going to need to worry about wolves. You won't even encounter wolves. At least you won't think of them as wolves, you may find that the wolves actually kind of like you. They may invite you into their packs. And before long, you'll find it's the sheep who are kind of annoying, who give you a bad name with the wolves, who really take this Christian thing too seriously for good taste. But God sends you out into the world to bear his name and to proclaim his good news. We are meant to be Christians in public. And this begins with submitting your actual life, my actual life, to the demands of discipleship. It means repenting of your sins, 
seeking to live in love and charity with your neighbors, discerning the spirits which, whose voices fill the airwaves of your life, refusing to compromise with sin, death, and the devil. And if you just do that, you'll stir up some wolves. The announcement of the gospel in word and deed is always a disruption to the sinful world. If you simply live the faith, it works like a wolf whistle. Well, not, a, not a wolf whistle. That's not the, you get the idea, right? You're going to stir up some wolves just by living and proclaiming the gospel. Remember, these apostles that Jesus is talking to, they are sent into the Roman Empire to announce the arrival of a, king, to, to announce the arrival of a rival kingdom. The Roman Empire announcing a different kingdom. That's called treason. It's not going to be received super well. And that's still our message. We're calling sinners to repentance. We call slaves to freedom. We call for submission to a true king. And when sinful people, you've probably experienced this as a sinful person, when sinful people are confronted with the truth that they are sinners, that they're cut off from goodness, that they're at enmity with God, that they're in need of grace and need to repent, they generally don't receive that news with gratitude or grace. When the powerful, when the self-sufficient are told that they're no longer in charge, that they are in fact subjects to a true ruler who loves them, yes, but who also demands their wholehearted obedience, they don't like that news. Them's fighting words most of the time. Now let's be real. Here in Hoover, slash Vestavia, slash Birmingham, slash Irondale, slash Trustville, slash all the places you all live, identifying yourself as a Christian is not generally a high-stakes activity. It remains a kind of cultural default. And to live in a culturally Christian or a nominally Christian society is a mixed blessing. There are great benefits for which we can thank God, and there are drawbacks. There are temptations away from living discipleship to the living Lord. And there's more to unpack there than we can do this morning, but we can at least acknowledge that ours is not a time or place, at least not yet, when Christians are dragged before judges and must plead before governors. Although I know some of you have, you know, court cases and news articles kind of going in your head from other places in the country. We can at least admit with gratitude that we Christians in America are not yet called to the martyrdom of death. And we shouldn't forget that this passage about persecution is heard with a whole lot of familiarity in other places in the world. But I want to keep our our sight close to home for the moment. Few in this room are going to suffer the kinds of persecution that the apostles suffered, Lord willing. Remember Paul recounts his afflictions to the Corinthians. He says, I suffered 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, and and yeah, danger in the wilderness and at sea and from false brothers. I toiled. I didn't get a whole lot of sleep. I was hungry and thirsty. But that's fine. Like, that was par for the course. We may not experience that in our life, not like the Apostle Paul, but we should remember that if the gospel of the kingdom of God is worth suffering great persecution for, It's worth suffering small persecutions for. And so the state, our governors and our kings, so to speak, may continue to gradually restrict its toleration of Christians who won't compromise. Be prepared. And you will, like Jeremiah in our Old Testament reading, find wolves who are camouflaged in the church. 
though I pray against that in our own parish. They will flog you in their synagogues, Jesus says. Be prepared. And your family and friends, those to whom you are closest, Jesus says, these two will oppose you when you seek to obey him and when you seek to tell them about his kingdom. And that can look a whole lot of different ways. It can be the cold shoulder, the awkward silence, the tense dinners, the swift loss of popularity or approval. And this one will hurt, perhaps most of all, to lose the love of your loved ones. Some in this congregation have borne and are bearing that very wound. And yet you bear it for their sake. You cannot cease from the mission God has given you because the wolves whom you will encounter in the state, in the church, in your personal circle, for all of their hatred and violence, even these wolves remain perishing and lost sheep who need the gospel just as much as you do. So Jesus prepares Christians sent into the world by telling them what they should expect. You're going out as sheep among wolves. And then he continues to prepare us by telling us how we should conduct ourselves. Since your sheep among wolves, be wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. Now you're probably aware of the fact that snakes aren't really the Bible's favorite creature. I think they're the only creature who are actually cursed in the Bible. You'll remember the whole garden thing with the serpent who was more crafty than any beast of the field. So when Jesus talks about the wisdom of snakes, he's not talking about Solomon's wisdom here. He's not talking about the wisdom that is the way of life in the Proverbs and the Psalms. He's talking about cleverness, discretion, skill, craftiness, inventiveness. It's, it's like the serpent's word games and his clever questions. And here Jesus is telling his apostles, he's telling us to be like snakes, Is God finally giving us permission to tell the occasional lie? Not quite. I don't think so. It's not permission to tell untruths, but it is permission and encouragement to use craftiness, cleverness. The strategy of the serpent can and should be a tool in the persecuted Christian's arsenal. Now, you're not supposed to or allowed to deceive when you proclaim the kingdom. You're not supposed to bait-and-switch somebody into church, okay? You're not supposed to psychologically manipulate someone into obedience. That's not what he's talking about. The wisdom of the serpent applies to persecutors. When you're persecuted, God is building his kingdom on the truth. And yet, when the truth meets opposition, it doesn't just mean you have to rush in and get wrecked. Playing fair with a wolf doesn't just mean offering at your neck right off the bat. When you meet with persecution and opposition, because you are taking the fire of the gospel into the world, you can and should use the tools that the shepherd has left for you in the field. An example here might help. Think of Paul. We just heard how much Paul suffered. And yet, here he is in Jerusalem, in the book of Acts. And there's a whole lot of wolves stirred up. There's a riot. And the Romans around aren't really happy about that. So they interrupt the riot. And a Roman tribune says... I'll figure this out. I'll go torture Paul for a little bit. We'll get things straightened out. Don't worry about it. And you can picture Paul. Um, He's there in the austere Roman barracks, and he's playing it cool while he's stretched out and bound for the flogging whips. And the centurion picks up the whip, and just as he's bringing his arm back for the first blow, Paul casually says, hey, real quick, this is fine. Do what you got to do. Just wanted to ask, is it okay if you flog Roman citizens? 
just because just I am one. If it's cool, like, go ahead. It's, I, I just don't want you to get in trouble. And the centurion drops the whip. He's terrified because he was about to beat a Roman citizen. And this strategy is how Paul ends up getting to witness the gospel before Felix the governor and Agrippa the king. See, Paul was never afraid to suffer for the gospel. And yet, when he had the opportunity to wield his political privilege to the advantage of the kingdom of God, he did it. And so the shepherd, Jesus, who oversees the life of his sheep, he has given to you a working mind. He's given you connections. He's given you resources. He's given you political rights. He's put a good head on your shoulders. So use those things for the advancement of the kingdom. Jesus wants you to use those things, and yet he qualifies it. Don't get too clever, okay? You need to temper your temptation to be a snake and be too clever. Temper it with the gentleness of the dove, because Christians are not supposed to be known by their scheming. Christians are supposed to be known by their love. You don't need to be naive. You, don't need to, you, you should not go out into this world with the, the less-than-Christian belief that everybody just has your best interests at heart and everybody is naturally good. That's not a Christian belief. You don't need to go into the world like that. At the same time, you should go into the world knowing that even your enemies, even your persecutors, stand in need of grace. Your mission is to offer everyone even your enemies, the love and reconciliation which Christ has offered you. Your mission is not to just outsmart your enemies, and it's certainly not to overpower them by force. It's to offer them the gospel. In this gospel passage, Jesus says, everyone in the world is going to hate you. And then he says, go out anyway and love everyone in the world. So be wary be trusting, be clever, be gentle and innocent, be sheep among wolves. Easy, right? You get it. We're all on the same page. It's complicated. It's not easy, but at least God's preparation is honest. And then Jesus hits us with this. So have no fear of them. I'm sorry, what? You've just described pretty much the perfect conditions for fear, Jesus. When we go out of those doors, you just promised us persecution. See, y'all are usually smiling at me when I say the dismissal at the end of the service, but you should be quaking in your Sunday shoes. And yet God prepares Christians to go out in the world bearing the fire of the gospel of the kingdom, even if and when you face persecution by reminding us about the sparrows. You know about sparrows. They're little birds, cheeping birds. They're everywhere. They're cheap. Jesus knew the market price, two for a penny. And yet, even these tiny little creatures, which are relatively worthless when it comes to human use, are beloved of God. God loves even these smallest and ubiquitous creatures with a fatherly love. Nothing happens to them apart from the Father, Jesus says, which means the Father is with the sparrow. At every moment of its life, from its birth to its death, nothing happens to a single sparrow in this world apart from God's oversight and fatherly care. And how much more? How much more does God love you? You're worth at least three sparrows, which doesn't sound like a lot, but remember, God really loves sparrows. He knows every detail about you. 
He's numbered the hairs on your head. And that kind of knowledge only comes from somebody who is enamored with you, who is engrossed by you, who loves you dearly, and who is with you always. He doesn't lie. He doesn't say that you're going to be unharmed as you live in his service. But he does promise that he's going to be with you through every trial, every broken relationship, every sad Saturday afternoon. He's going to be with you at every step. God the Father has gathered you in here this morning because he loves you. So much so that Jesus the Son willingly died for you and he loves you so much that he's given you his own spirit to fill you with life. And now he's going to send you forth in the power of the spirit because he doesn't just love you and he doesn't just trust you to do his work, but he also loves the world. And he's drawing all people to himself He's doing it through you. So let us go forth into this persecuting world, sheep among wolves, with the sharpness of the serpent, the gentleness of a dove, and ever assured by the sparrow that when we go forth into the world, we go forth in the name of Christ, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit and in the tender love of God the Father. Amen.